your weekly educational coffee is about to be served. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Educational experts from all around the world are sharing some coffee and ideas with you. It's Teacher's Coffee with Natasha and George. Hello, Natasha. Hi, George. Uh, hello to our special guest today. Uh, how was your uh, previous year? I mean, I, I haven't seen you for a year. Uh, I saw you last year, actually. <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, given the circumstances and the new COVID outbreak, the Omicron one, you know, it was relatively, I had a good time. We don't know what to expect. I mean, every day we have new variations and we don't know what to do, how to deal with it. But anyhow, at Teachers Coffee, we remain positive and we want to inspire uh, our listeners to, to do what they believe is better for them and to do even more and progress. Progress is our main target here. Absolutely. We never stop. Yes. Life goes on uh, with or without COVID. And that is why today with us, we have another exceptional guest. Uh, this time we have with us uh, Mrs. Jane Mandalios, uh, who is um, actually a member of Tissot Greece. And not only that, a very active member, of course. And um, with a lot of um, interesting um, uh, things and activities, a very uh, long bio, but I think Jane, uh, and this could stand as the first question. First of all, welcome to Teachers Coffee. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I think you should give us a brief introduction uh, of yourself before we start these, uh, these questions so that our listeners know more about you. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's very, um, it's an honor and um, uh, Express Publishing is a really impressive uh, publishing house. So congratulations to you for that. Thank um, you. Uh, I'm British, as you probably hear from my accent, but I've been married for like a hundred years to a Greek husband, <laughs> which is why I have a, a Greek surname. Um, uh, we've been here in Greece since 2006, um, which doesn't feel so long. Um, but um, my journey started in ELT many years ago, more than 40 years ago, um, when I met my Greek husband <laughs> um, <laughs> and realized that um, my future was going to be with him. Um, 
And uh, so after I graduated, I spent a few months in Greece doing the uh, usual kind of private lessons from the stereo thing. <laughs> yeah. And then um, because he had been born and brought up in um, the Middle East, in Egypt, and then in Libya, and he was a civil engineer who uh, studying civil engineering, um, it seemed kind of a logical step to go to Libya, where he had a job, got a job there. Um, and uh, I realized that, yes, seeing I was throwing in my lot with him, that uh, hmm. um, the most logical thing was to go into language teaching, which is not where I thought I was going to be at all uh, when I was younger. Um, and so we went to Libya in 1979, which, um, if you know anything about the history of the Middle East, was quite a cataclysmic time. Um, and it was, I think, I probably owe my Tison journey to um, Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, who really? is the, yes, yes, the founder of the Islamic Republic in Iran. Mm. <laughs> um, how, how Libya and Iran are connected in this okay, context? Yes, because uh, it's so in 79 was the time of the uh, Iranian hostage crisis. If you, you've seen the film, mm. um, what's it called? What's the name of that film? Uh, the, Argo. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that's it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, so there was this enormous uh, upheaval in the uh, Muslim world in, in the Middle East. And so the Americans withdrew all non-essential personnel from all potential hotspots. And Libya was definitely one of those. So what that meant was that the universities, which were all English medium, more of that later, mm -hmm. um, lost all of their English speaking staff, all of their American and British staff, because the, the Americans and British knew, thought it was too dangerous to have mm. people there. So I pitched up in Libya with my husband, right, um, where he, he was familiar with Benga in Benghazi, where he, he'd gone to school, um, and discovered that the universities had no English teachers. Now, I had, all I had was a CELTA, right, so really no experience at all, my, my few months of teaching from the studio and private lessons in Greece. Um, but I thought, okay, you know, nothing ventured, nothing, uh, you know, uh, nothing lost. Uh, so I went along, I took my husband's um, Samsonite briefcase, and in it I had my one certificate in CELTA, and I pitched up at the university. I said, you need English teachers? I am an English teacher. Yeah. So they took me, and that's where my journey began. And um, the fact that I was uh, a native speaker and I had some uh, ELT background meant that they welcomed me and the fact that they had no English teachers okay they welcomed me with open arms so more of that that issue of native speakerism later on but that's how I got into it and uh, we stayed in Libya for three years and then I left uh, and did my master's degree and then we went to Dubai mm -hmm. uh, where again uh, Dubai is in much I think all of the Persian Gulf countries um, the higher education is in English, English medium. Mm -hmm. um, though I actually started off at the British Council in Dubai. And I remember um, when um, uh, so we had left Libya uh, and knowing that it was you know, not really a place to have a family. And then my husband got this job in Dubai. And um, I didn't, we didn't know where Dubai was exactly. So I, I go back to my, my husband's house. We were staying with my, my mother-in-law. And I looked for Dubai on the map 
And of course, yeah, yeah, my mother-in-law had a map that was about, I don't know, 50 years old. So there's no divide. What there is on the map is Trucial Oman. Uh, and that was the original name of uh, the what then became the Emirates at that point. So um, that wasn't much help. So then I go back to the British Council in Athens to find a, an encyclopedia. So, you know, we're talking about the 70s, you know, yeah, yeah. when that's how you find information. Um, and then we discovered where Dubai was. Uh, and we then went to Dubai in 84. And I worked first in the British Council, then in the Higher College of Technology, and then later inside university. Um, and then from there, we came to Greece in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I've been uh, with DIRI, the American College of Greece, ever since then. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. What, uh, what a, a cycle of life. I mean, it's really impressive. Uh, but ever since, ever since you came to Greece or not, uh, you will have to explain that to me. I, I have noticed that you have been involved in projects uh, 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 connected to teaching English to refugees. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about these projects and your experiences with them? I mean, the conditions, uh, uh, students and teachers relationships, lesson planning and so on, whatever you would like to share with us. Right, that's been a fairly recent project. We started this, we were approached in 2019, I think, by the Greek Council for Refugees, um, who are, like I think probably the most official body dealing with refugees, migrants here in Greece. And they have a, um, a department a, 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 a called Pixida, which is the Department for Intercultural um, Communication. And what they do is they uh, teach Greek, which is absolutely mm -hmm. necessary for the integration, for the uh, prospects of migrants and refugees here in Greece. They do Greek lessons, they do um, CV preparation, they do work preparation, placements. They're a really um, excellent uh, body. Um, and they came to us saying, well, look, in, in addition to Greek, which is the absolute priority, um, our uh, learners, our students are also asking for English. And because as you very well know, English has become almost a prerequisite here in Greece. Um, really in order to do it, to do anything, you need English. Um, but also, particularly for this group of learners, um, English offers job opportunities, you know, in hospitality, etc. So they came to us and asked us, would we help them and set up um, a uh, program in English for refugees? Uh, and they, they approached us in the, the Masters in TESOL. We have an MA in TESOL at the at Duri. Um, and we saw this as a very interesting opportunity, both in terms of service to the community. That's one of the pillars of the American College of Greece. It's um, and one of our, our motto is not to be served, but to serve. Uh, and so um, contribution to the community is really important. So this was something we thought was, was really important. Um, it also allowed us to offer um, teaching experience for our uh, MA TESOL students in a different um, a different domain. Um, so it was something we thought was very interesting, useful, relevant to everyone concerned. So we started off face to face. This was BC uh, before mm -hmm. COVID. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and of course, um, uh, what we had, we were teaching adults then, and that went extremely well. We had, I think, six groups of learners. Um, and the refugees were coming from all over the place. I think the majority would be probably Syrian 
Afghani, but there were many from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so we had quite a mixed group, and that is a, a, a characteristic of refugee learners. Some of them, say the Francophone, uh, uh, the Sub-Saharan African were mostly mm -hmm. Francophone. So they had, for example, the English, uh, the um, uh, Roman alphabet, the uh, students from Afghan, Afghan Afghanistan, um, obviously Syria, they had a, a non-Roman alphabet. So that's a different challenge altogether. But we did that for until COVID struck. Then we kind of thought, we threw up our hands and thought, what could we do next? But um, uh, Pixida was brilliant in, in turning their Greek lessons online. So we then um, uh, turned our English classes online into what we call the uh, online English cafe. Mm -hmm. So um, that was our, mm. our concept. And we thought, well, we can do this online and we'll develop it in the kind of uh, in the philosophy of a cafe. What do you do in a, in a cafe? It's just a year in Greece, okay? You go, you meet friends, you exchange information, exchange news, whatever. So we set up the um, uh, online English cafe um, uh, with that kind of, in that spirit. Um, it was very much student-centered. What do you want to talk about? So we, we used topics that we thought were relevant to them. COVID, for example, we had a whole couple of weeks doing COVID, COVID vocabulary, understanding um, uh, COVID-related vocabulary, understanding what you need to do uh, uh, here in Greece, COVID. Um, we had units dealing with um, uh, you know, more traditional topics, you know, like family, like food. But um, the, the purpose of the cafe was to make it, it was basically lexically centered, but also student centered. Um, and obviously delivered online. So um, with all the challenges we had with that, with you know, um, uh, access to internet, et cetera, et cetera. But what that meant was that we were then able to uh, offer classes, not just to students here in Athens, but we were also able to work with um, some of the refugee camps in Malakasa, for example, in Korintos. So it opened up a whole new possibility, range of possibilities for, um, uh, English or, or language teaching classes. Um, so that was, I think, very interesting, very successful. Our students, in other words, our master students who are and a couple of undergraduate students got so much out of this. I mean, I think for many teachers here in Greece, they're, they're, uh, they, they told us that their experience is often limited to um, Greek students in front of Syria with a particular uh, purpose of getting the lower or, or what certification. So for many of them, this was a completely new experience for teaching um, a completely different kind of learner who had very different backgrounds, very different purposes in learning English. Um, and in fact, one of our students writing out said, um, uh, I'm not just teaching, I am being taught, she said. Which I thought was a, a, a great um, comment on it. True. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it sounds like this context is more motivational, more motivating even for the students as well. No? I mean, you know, having this opportunity being like simulating a cafe and talking about whatever you want in English can be a great boost of motivation. Yes. And that was one of our, uh, uh, one of our main goals was to, to um, uh, increase their confidence in their ability to um, uh, communicate in English, right? Um, and so, you know, if you like a less pressured environment, more student-centered, I mean, that um, 
is imp incredibly important in, in uh, developing confidence. Whatever includes the word coffee or cafe, I believe <laughs> it creates some kind of relaxing atmosphere. That's the reason why we also call the show Teachers Coffee, because mm. the initial thought is to have a friendly chat, mm. sharing experiences, not something too formal or something to be afraid of. Mm. It's mm. like a coffee, like you exactly. said. Yes, exactly. cup of coffee. Yes. Now, before this interview, I must say that we have had a, a brief chat and uh, you told me that you practice a lot of translanguaging and I thought that that might be a very interesting thing to talk about yes. because we all know that translanguage right now is a, is a buzzing word in ELD. Everyone is talking about it from coaching to teaching in conferences. So um, you may want to tell us a little bit about your experiences uh, and maybe your perspective regarding translanguaging, because from our perspective, we only have a theoretical knowledge of it, but you have experienced it, I think, and mm. it would be very interesting to have this um, theory versus practice assessment from you uh, regarding this topic. Well, guys, I think that probably you already practice it. <laughs> I mean, when you are discussing with colleagues, say you two together, uh, you're both Greek, right? Yeah. When you're discussing what to do, are you discussing in English or in Greek? Half and half um, sometimes. It depends. No, it depends, yes. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Right. I, I don't think about it so much. Whatever comes exactly. more natural. Yes. Exactly. And that is the point. That is one of the key features of translanguaging. It is the most natural process that we follow, that anyone follows, that has more than one language um, in their repertoire. Um, and there are various definitions of it, um, but it's basically the, um, the use of and the, uh, as the point of the speaker and the encouragement of, on the point of the teacher, students to use all the languages in their repertoire to develop their learning. Um, now I, I feel quite smug about this. But I, I got into this way before it became fashionable. Mm -hmm. um, so I took it maybe about 15, even 20 years ago. I was really interested in this whole concept of the use of the L1 or other languages. Okay, because many, because of course, as you know, that um, multilingualism is the default human uh, condition. There are uh, the number of monolingual speakers in the world are actually in the minority. The majority of people speak more than one language. Hmm? And not only that, even, even, neuroscience, that. even neuroscience yes. now confirms that it's a very, very brain friendly way of yes. dealing with languages. Mm -hmm. exactly uh, but what anyway, you said. people just do look at Africa, look at India. I mean, many, uh, Asia, many, many uh, uh, countries, nationalities, groups of people have two or three or four languages on the go all the time. I mean, you could think of uh, um, even, even Europe. I mean, you've got countries like Switzerland, countries like Luxembourg, okay, uh, mm -hmm. where the speakers operate in two, at least two, if not more than two languages all the time. So I got really interested in this um, when I was teaching in Dubai in particular, um, now, in Dubai, as I said, the Persian Gulf and many parts of the world, all higher education is only in English, only in English. So that means if you're a student in, in, the, in the United Arab Emirates or Qatar or Saudi or, or many other countries, if you want to go to university, you have to do that in English. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
unless you're studying Islamic studies, right? Everything else is in English. Now, they set up, I'm talking about uh, the Emirates now, uh, in the 80s, 80s, 90s, okay, late 80s, 90s, um, a series of higher education establishments, the high college of technology first, then Zayed University. Um, and they staffed these with mostly Western expatriates, mostly, who had English, right? And the language of instruction was English, English only, English only, the monolingual default, mm -hmm. which um, uh, kind of uh, in, is infused, has been infused in ELT for the last 40 years or so. Um, and I saw, I began to question this, but partly because I was also a fairly recent learn, learner of Greek. I mean, I learned Greek when I, I came involved with, with Greeks, my husband, etc. So for me, learning Greek was a, a more recent experience than um, some people like yourselves. You probably never remember learning English. You've probably done it all your life. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a more recent experience of learning a foreign language. And of course, Arabic, to some extent, and my Arabic is not really very good at all. Um, and all the time, uh, I was, for example, um, referring to English when I wanted to, to learn to, to use words in Greek, particularly vocabulary, right? I would use, you know, uh, I, I would ask somebody, what, what's the Greek word for this? I would use a bilingual dictionary. So I would, um, uh, uh, I would use, uh, exploit my L1 in order to develop my L2. Now, at the university there, it was English only, all right? Arabic was haram, forbidden. And um, most of the teachers there did not speak Arabic. Uh, there were quite a lot of um, uh, Arabs who were clearly bilingual or trilingual in many cases, right? But the whole philosophy was that English rules, English dominates, English is the best. Mm -hmm. Arabic is not to be used. And there were people who were told they would be sacked if they used Arabic. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Why? Absolutely. This is just crazy. I mean, on, on all levels, on all levels, okay, if nothing else, it's incredibly, if you like, imperialistic, isn't it? It's incredibly yes. discriminatory. And, and the, if you were a native speaker, all right, you were seen as better, right, than uh, um, uh, the uh, Arabs. I had, there were uh, Arab teachers from Jordan, Syria, uh, uh, Algeria, who spoke English, French, Berber, maybe other languages as well. But they were not seen as, as equal <laughs> as we were. And the Arabic was not to be used anywhere. And I thought, I began to really question this. So this is ridiculous. Um, and for example, all the dictionaries had to be monolingual dictionaries. So I was saying, well, I'm learning English, uh, Greek, right, or Arabic, whatever it is. I need to use a bilingual dictionary to find a word. You know, if I want to um, develop my vocabulary, okay, I need to have that word given to me, right, translated or, or looked up in a dictionary. Um, and I began more and more to question this. And then um, I did some research with the the, um, the Arab teachers. How did they feel about this? Um, and they would say things like, well, occasionally they whisper we would give the word in Arabic, right? But don't tell me. <laughs> it's a secret, top secret. <laughs> I did some work with the students and discovered that they um, would say, one of them I remember writing said, uh, Arabic is not for the classroom. Arabic is for us at home in our own time. In other words, to say that the L1 was completely discounted, excluded. It had no value. 
um, I then did a piece of research with um, uh, about 30 of the teachers, um, all of which uh, the, the sample had to be student, uh, teachers that had learned another language, right? So if they had learned French or Spanish or Turkish, whatever it was. And um, about their use of dictionaries. So I said to them, okay, what dictionaries do you um, allow, uh, uh, encourage your students to use here in your classes? They said monolingual, English to English. I said, okay, when you were learning Spanish, French, whatever, what dictionaries did you use? Uh, guess what they said? Bilingual. Bilingual. <laughs> Absolutely. I then did a little experiment where I made them, um, uh, they had to find the meaning of four words, okay, and I made them nonsense words so they couldn't be guessed from any context. And they had to use a monolingual dictionary, in other words, so if they were a Spanish speaker, they had to use a Spanish to Spanish, Spanish. dictionary or, or Turkish to Turkish, whatever. And I made them use a monolingual dictionary to find the meaning of these words. They hated it. They absolutely hated it. And I said, well, okay, what does that say to you about your um, uh, use of the L1 or allowance of the use of the L1 Arabic in this case, all right, with your own students in your own teaching? So they were scratching their heads and thought about this. <sighs> but um, what it, 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 it did, uh, and then I, I talked about this in, to many other people in the institution. I remember one meeting we were in, and one of the, one of the deans was wobbling on about you know, the use of English being, uh, uh, the use of Arabic being, um, uh, being forbidden. And um, I talked a little bit to him, and I said, you studied Spanish. This guy had done Spanish and modern languages, all right. Um, and I said, when you were studying Spanish, did you use only Spanish? And he said, oh, actually, I remember having texts where it was the Spanish on one side and the English on the other. Hmm? And I said, well, does that make you rethink? So what it was, this then led me into researching this and, and, and looking at teacher attitudes to this and thinking, well, where did this come about? You know, how did this come about that this whole system of education um, is then infused with this belief that um, uh, you, you have to discount the mother tongue and or any other languages. Um, and so this was, I say, about 15 plus years ago. And of course, since then, there's been a whole um, paradigm shift in this. And you've got all kinds of people researching this, writing about this. You've got uh, people like, uh, obviously, um, of Ophelia Garcia with the CUNY NICE project in New York and, and the States, where they're looking particularly at bilingual education um, uh, in, in America. Um, but you've got plenty of people now talking about it in um, ELT and thinking about um, uh, uh, realizing that the students L1 is an enormous resource. Um, Translanguaging itself as a term began in Wales, right? Um, where, I don't know if you're familiar with, with the, the with it was political as well and linguistic, social, where there was this enormous drive to, to resuscitate Welsh, which um, is spoken, uh, but by a relatively small proportion of the population in Wales. But the belief that um, this is something really important, this is our heritage, we cannot let English wipe out Welsh. And so they began uh, uh, this, 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 this policy of using um, the English and the Welsh to help, okay, uh, uh, 
revitalize the language and protect the language of Welsh. So there, what they were doing was kind of using, um, uh, uh, for example, they'd get the children to write in Welsh, having read something in English, or to talk about something in English, having read about it in Welsh. So exploiting that language, these different languages, many different languages, um, to develop their knowledge, but also both languages, to develop both languages. Um, now, of course, in Europe, you know, we've had this, the, the drive of multilingualism, pluralism, and this belief that, you know, we should draw upon all of students' linguistic resources in order for them to meet their communication needs. Now, I should say that what we are not talking about, right, is, for example, a classroom, let's say, a Greek teacher who's doing, delivers the classroom in Greek, 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 Greek bit of English. Okay, no one is advocating that. No one is saying that you should be doing basically grammar translation and as it was originally with basically 95% or 98% of the lesson in the L1 and a bit in the L2. No one is, no one is doing that. Um, uh, classrooms should be the opportunity for, for students to have maximum exposure to the target language. But, okay, um, to capitalize upon to exploit all of their linguistic resources in order to achieve what it is they need to achieve so it is it is really important in terms of, of pedagogy it's really important in terms of um, linguistic preservation if you like but it's also a question of, of human rights um, uh, and saying that this is your language your um, uh, culture um, and you cannot remove that and preclude any use of that. Um, it's like my students saying that Arabic is only used for the house, for the home, not for <laughs> the college. No. Um, so with our, our, any refugee learners, okay, migrant learners, it's capitalizing on what they already have. How can you use um, your mother tongue, own languages, native languages, there's a very big debate about which term to use. How can they be used and exploited for uh, uh, the purposes um, of whatever your purposes might be? Um, and often in the in our refugee classes, you'd have several languages going on. You'd have, of course, yes. um, yeah, because they, uh, most of them had some Greek. So a, a lot of them used, um, you'd hear them, uh, others of them explaining a, a term in Greek uh, an English term in Greek or, or in Arabic or in Farsi or whatever it might be. Um, and so fortunately, I'm very happy to say that now translanguaging has come right uh, in sense. Well, it's not exactly a, a circle, but it could be a circle because we're talking about maybe that last hundred years, we've had this whole monolingual dominance. Um, but now I think, you know, uh, it is very much uh, uh, a reappraisal of that and a paradigm shift which I'm very happy to see. And, and as I say, it's, it's the most natural of processes. You know, I'm watching um, a film in Greek or listen to something in Greek on the radio. I'll talk about it in English to my husband or other Greek speakers or the other way around. No, the mm, other exactly. way around. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the most natural of processes um, and one which we can uh, exploit, I mean, use um, uh, to terrific, effect i think i think that was very enlightening because the major question of all the teachers and the people who listen to this for the first time is 
how much should I use this? And I think you, you defined exactly the context that I'm going to use this because one, it's a natural process and second, up to the point that it becomes resourceful for the learning of L2. So I think this is, it's, it's very clear. Absolutely. And I had a, one of my master's students working on this recently and um, uh, as she was delivering, she was actually doing a, a kind of presentation um, of, of what she discovered about this. And one of the other students said, thank you, she said, for lifting my guilt, she said. <laughs> <laughs> You refrained um, from saying the word, but the situation that you described before it was like demonization of oh, of, of using you know any ridiculous. your own language. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, back in the, the crisis days, I'm hearing this word in Greek, ali lengis, ali lengis. I didn't, I couldn't figure out what that meant. So I said to my husband, "What does that mean?" Mm -hmm. So he gives me a kind of paraphrase of it, which is what you would get in a monolingual dictionary. Okay, give me a paraphrase. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. In order to get that word, I had to look it up in the dictionary. Ah, solidarity. Now I get it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. But it wasn't until I got the translation that I really got the concept. Mm -hmm. And that was like the experiment I did with my 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 teachers in Dubai. The same thing. The paraphrase doesn't, you, you want the word, you want the translation. Now, of course, there are issues in getting the right translation. But similarly, the other way around, that was something receptive, productive. I wanted to use the word vulnerable, all right? And I didn't know, I didn't know the word in Greek, all right? Now, uh, and, and uh, if I'd done what it was supposed to be the right way to do it, I would have given a paraphrase, whatever. I wanted the word vulnerable, okay? <laughs> I went to the dictionary, I found it. And I use that word vulnerable. Yes. Now I need that word. <laughs> well, actually, what I wanted to say is that since you mentioned the basic human rights and since communication is a basic human right, yeah. trying to eliminate one's native language is some, somehow a thinking limiting process, I would say, because we tend to think in in, in special languages, even though we don't realize, we think in either yeah. Greek or English or something. So if you actually tell someone that you're not allowed to use that, it's like limiting their thoughts. Absolutely. And I, actually overheard, I overheard a teacher recently who was talking about a student's piece of writing and the student had used some, some vocabulary, misused it right, wrongly. Um, and she said to the student, where did you get the word from? She said, in the dictionary. And the student mm. said, the teacher said to the student, don't do that. Always use a monolingual dictionary. And I'm thinking, how do you get the word <laughs> vulnerable right, from a monolingual dictionary? You can't do it. Yes. So it's a question of, again, rights, recognizing my rights, okay, mm -hmm. to uh, use whatever resources I want. And for example, if you, um, and I, I feel quite strongly, I mean, my Greek is reasonable, but it's not that good. And I feel that a lot of it is to do with vocabulary. And if you say to me, I am not allowed to enrich my vocabulary by using mm -hmm. a bilingual dictionary, then that is, I think, an infringement of my rights. Um, so yes. there are many issues tied up in all of that. Of um, and a lot of it goes back to native speakerism and the belief that English only and the native speaker is the best. You know? uh, well, this discussion is so revelating because I've been having right now glimpses of the past of me being a student and there was that dogma, you need to think like a native speaker. You need uh, to start thinking yes. in English. And, yes. I, and, you know, I was terrified. 
And yes. as you said, that was an infringement of my right because absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Why do yeah. I have to do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Horrendous, absolutely. And fortunately, that wheel has turned. Fortunately, with all the development of ELF, English and Lingua Franca, uh, world Englishes. Mm -hmm. Jane, you are also a coordinator at an MA program in uh, Derry College for yes. TESOL uh, learners. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, we're very proud of that program. It's relatively new. Um, it's an MA in TESOL. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting, it's a blended program. So it means that um, our students, uh, it, it's, it, so we take a course, it's one week online, asynchronous, and one week when you come face to face for a three hour session on a Saturday. So it's very flexible, I think, and it's very um, um, uh, user friendly. It's aimed at practicing professionals. We know that people work during the week. So that means that typically, most of us, well, all of our students take it on a part-time basis. So it means that they only actually have to attend physically once a fortnight if they choose two courses on that one cycle. Um, it's, we're quite proud of it. We, it it's it's uh, a lot of theory, obviously, but it's grounded in professional practice. Um, and so all the time we're coming back to your, 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 your professional practice, your teaching, your environment. Um, we also, within it, we've got embedded the Trinity Cert TESOL, which is like the CELTA equivalent. So you get a, a bog off, buy one, get one free. <laughs> you get both the MA and um, the uh, Trinity Cert TESOL. So that um, is very, very attractive. We've had some of our graduates go and teach in summer schools um, in Britain and other places. Um, uh, uh, our students find it often transformative. Um, I think especially the older ones that have been in the business a while. Um, and we've had some really splendid um, uh, graduates um, and really splendid feedback from them. So we're, we're very proud of that. And as I say, we were able to use uh, our program um, and our, our students to teach on the, um, and the Big C, the English language program. Um, so we're, we're very happy to be offering that within the School of uh, Professional Graduate and, and Continuing Studies at the American College of Greece. Super. So um, to sum up, uh, because you've said quite a lot of uh, interesting uh, things uh, to keep in mind and to process after leaving uh, this show today, uh, what do you think the future of VLT will be? Oh. Good point. Good point. <laughs> yes. I think there are a lot of positives in that there is now the challenge to native speakerism. There is now the challenge to the monolingual hegemony. All right. Mm -hmm. um, there is the development of ELF, English as lingua franca, of world Englishes. So the, the deterritorialization of the language so that it's not owned uh, um, by English or Americans any longer. Um, that I think is very positive. Um, I, I wonder, I worry a bit about its globalization uh, in the sense that it, it is becoming so dominant. Um, and so that, for example, as I'm quoting in, in the Arabian Gulf, Persian Gulf, that you know, it, it has taken over higher education. Um, and I think they're very, very right in Scandinavia, Italy, for example, to fight off that move to um, make it the language of higher education, because they were trying to do that in Italy and Scandinavia as well. Um, so um, 
because I think what that does, it, it devalues the other languages. I mean, Greek is absolutely fine <laughs> to carry out um, higher education, to carry out uh, research, okay? So is Danish, so is Italian, so is Arabic. But I, I, I worry a bit that um, uh, English is, is taking over, you know, is it, is it, you know, um, is it a Trojan horse? <laughs> yeah. it could be <laughs> easily yes. yes I mean you've got the, pro, the, the pros that you know yeah. it, it offers open so many doors but um do these doors then only lead to um further you know English language dominance so that does worry me a little bit mm. that's an interesting view though. yes yes so we should think view. about it yeah. very interesting view. <laughs> yes Jane that was really enlightening thank you so much I think today you gave us the real essence of translanguage and you made us understand a lot of things. At least, you know, I got so many useful things out of this chat. Mm -hmm. So thank you. And I'm sure our listeners will find this uh, interview very Amazing, amazing. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you to both. And a very happy new year to all your listeners. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Happy new year from us as well. Happy thank new year. You, thank you. And don't forget to follow our channel on Mixcloud and Spotify and join our teachers coffee group on Facebook. Let's stay together connected.